Church, open your Bibles. We are going to be in the book of Joshua this morning, Old Testament, Joshua chapter 2. You know, we all love it when our plans work out. Let me give you an example of that. Perhaps you make an investment, and the investment, well, it just works. Maybe you bought a house in the past number of years, and you've just watched that house appreciate, and it's like you kind of check it on Zillow and like, okay, hey, we are doing good here, and that just feels good. Maybe you've been a matchmaker, and well, you know, hey, the couple just, there was magic there. And, you know, you say with pride, well, you know, I did introduce them. I mean, you know, so that feels pretty good for you. It's a plan that has worked out. But, you know, we've all probably lived long enough to know that all of our grand plans do not work out. There's something that obviously goes awry oftentimes. And I'm referring right now to the story of a college student. Her name is Mariah McHenry college student at Eastern Washington University, and she reflected upon her life, her young life, and how her plans went a little different than what she imagined. She says, if there's one thing I've learned as an adult, it's that nothing ever goes according to plan. I remember during my freshman year of high school, my English teacher had us write out an essay, which was our four-year plan. She said the plan included what classes we were going to take, what activities we were going to do, and what we were thinking about majoring once we got ready to go to college. She says, according to my four-year plan, I was going to be a marine biology nursing major who moonlights as a professional violinist and goes to school on a volleyball, gymnastics, and basketball scholarship to Stanford. (laughs) Needless to say, my plans did not work out. I quit playing the violin after my freshman year and I gained 10 pounds when I started college. And yes, I did not go to Stanford. She says, we all have those ideas in our heads about how we think our lives are going to play out. We may plan on graduating in four years or getting married by a certain age or traveling around the world before age 25. We've all made those kind of crazy long-term plans with the utmost confidence that everything will work out. However, as you grow up, you begin to realize that life rarely works out the way you think it will. You fail a class, you have a breakup, or something else big happens that forces you to reevaluate everything in your life. The hardest part about watching your plans fall through is letting go of what you thought was going to happen. And boy, she wrote that before COVID. I can only imagine what she's saying now. God's work and his timetable rarely matches our grand plans. And honestly, at times, that can be very frustrating. Some of the deepest and uh, most profound times of confusion in our lives can be when, well, our lives are not working out. Today, we're going to roll up our sleeves, and we're going to look again at the life of Rahab. And what we're going to find is that the plans, the best laid plans, go incredibly wrong. Almost from the very beginning, from day one, it's like, oh my gosh, what has just transpired here? We're really into some deep water. There's an old saying. It says this, all plans are great until the first shot is fired. 
It's kind of a military idea, but you know, you make all kinds of war plans, but then the first shot's fired and poof, so much is out the window. Or in the great theologian, uh, the one Mike Tyson that I know, here's, here's what the great theologian Mike Tyson says right here. Give me Mike Tyson. He's there, isn't he? There he is. Every, every, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. You know, I mean, that just says it. I mean, it just says a lot of what we've all experienced with, with life. Well, today we're going to find out again that the plans that they had laid, the plans that they laid for all kinds of success as they got ready to enter the land, well, those are going to be changed different than what they imagined that they would be. Joshua chapter 2, we're starting in verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men uh, secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they came from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out, and I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in, out in order on the roof. So the men pursued them uh, all the way to the Jordan as far as the fjords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. This morning, we're going to be taking a look at this life of Rahab, getting a little bit deeper. And let's make sure that we understand who's doing what as we wade into this story. Uh, remember that Israel has left again Egypt. They've wandered in the desert for about 40 years. And now they're camping on the banks of the Jordan River, getting ready to cross over into the Promised Land. I've got a little map up here for you. They're camping right there on the right side of the Jordan River. It's called the Transjordan, or meaning the other side of the Jordan. And the first city that they're going to go to is Jericho. You see it's the second dot in. And it's about five miles from the, uh, the, the water of the Jordan River. There. They're just above the Dead Sea. And here's the nation of Israel camped, poised, ready to go into the land. You remember that Moses has died. And I've got a picture there of what Joshua might have looked like. He's the, the, the lieutenant of Moses. And he's been put in command. And he's now leading. And Joshua does something very interesting. He says, before we go, I'm going to send two spies out, and they're going to go in and look at the land, and especially the city of Jericho. Now, again, they were going to go to Jericho because Jericho is known to be a fortified city, has walls, big walls, and it's, very, you know, it's a very stout city that they're going to attack first. He's also doing something, though, that no doubt is meant to right a wrong from the past. You know your biblical history. You know that there were 12 spies sent out in the first round when they're right on the edge of coming into the promised land 40 years earlier. And 12 spies come into the land and they come back and they say, it was just as prosperous as we said it would be, or as God said it would be. It's fruitful everywhere. But the thing that we ran into is fortified cities and people that are huge. There's no way that we can overcome them. We're puny in their sight. 
And these 10 spies who came back with a negative report, two came back with a positive report, Joshua and Caleb, but the 10 had the day and infected the people. And the people said, oh, don't make us go in. And they said, you know, we really want to protect our children. And God says, all right, with you and what you say you want, you're going to wander in the desert and die off as a generation. But guess who's going to go into the promised land? It's going to be your kids. And they're going to be the ones that are going to fight for the victory. And so the question comes with us. These spies are sent out. What's going to happen with the spies? Are they going to come back filled with faith or are they going to come back filled with fear? Are they going to be successful in this journey to go out and spy out the land and what is going to be their report? What we discover from the very get-go is (laughs) their plan unravels. Problems arise immediately and what we're going to discover is that God is at work in the midst of their failed plans. Here's what I want you to hear today. In fact, it's going to be on the screen. God's greatest work happens when our plans unravel. That's what I want you to hear today. And that's what we're going to explore today in this passage. God's greatest work happens when our plans unravel. It's when our plans unravel that his plan oftentimes shines in the midst of all of our ashes. And so let's explore that together. First, God's work takes us to very unexpected places. The spies enter the city and quickly they enter the house of the prostitute Rahab. Record scratch. I mean, he says it almost like, oh yeah, by the way, they just went to the house of the prostitute. I mean, can you imagine the spies go to mom and dad before they leave and they say, you know, so here's the grand plan. We're going to enter the city of Jericho. We decided to go to the brothel first. Mom would say, no way, Jose. That's not a good plan at all. Why are you planning to go to the brothel first? I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. And again, we're Jewish people. We follow the Lord. We're righteous people. We would stay a country mile away from that location. So, so why would we go there? When you think about it, it's probably a wise spot to go if you're trying to get information. And if you're a foreigner and you're trying to fit in, probably a lot of foreign guys are there. So it, it, it's a good cover, as it were. But again, it's not a place where you would go because again, you know, it's just not in the grand plan of of how things kind of pencil out, of how they would work. So many times God takes us to places that we could never imagine. They're places that, well, they, they don't fit what we imagine will happen or they don't fit a grid for us of the places that we can imagine ourselves being in. Let me give you an example of that. I'm going to do a little blast from the past. I've got a picture here of Denise and me in Nairobi, Kenya. It's last year. No, no, no. no, It's not. Uh, Denise has got the good do going. The uh, 1996 do. And you notice I have hair. You know, so I mean, hey, we're on all cylinders right here. We went to Nairobi in order to care for street children. There was a lot of children from other countries that had ended up in Nairobi, and they were known as street children who sniffed gasoline in order to become high. And they took a bunch of the children off the street, and they were creating a a home for them, and we were a part of, of helping to build a home for them. I will never forget, Denise will never forget, our first night there. And we got off the plane. It was late at night. They picked us up at the airport, a group of us in, I think, a couple of vans. And we passed through the city, pitch dark. And all I remember in passing through the city was there were these roundabouts and there were these bonfires that were burning at these roundabouts with military guys with huge guns that were at those spots. It took us maybe about an hour to get out of the city. 
and already we're just kind of on pins and needles. The, the, the van swings its lights down across this gated spot where it's going to be the university where we're going to stay more about that in just a second. But the lights swing by and all you see at the gate is this man holding a spear. And they've got to come in and unbolt the gate in order to let the car pass through. We found out later he was the guard there with a spear to keep the wild animals and the thieves away. We were at a university, whatever university conjures up in your mind, we were going to stay in dorms. Uh, Dismiss that because, well, that was not this. Uh, It was very Spartan, shall we say. And that night, I will never forget, it was so dark. And the stars were practically jumping out of the sky to us. And although that was beautiful, it only served to tell us how far away from home we were. Denise had left a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And that night, she wept. She wept so far from home, so far away from those little ones. And she said, I just want to go home. (laughs) And how would I respond? Suck it up, buttercup? Well, you know. (laughs) Hopefully I was a little bit more sensitive than that. I'll never forget that night. We slept in the dorms. There were bunk beds there. And Denise and I slept on the bottom bunk of a bunk bed and little thin mattress, if you even want to call it that. Fitful night of sleep. And of course, it would get better over the course of the few weeks that we were there. But that night, we wondered, where has God brought us? If you're a follower of God, your plans are going to unravel at some space. And you're going to ask yourself, where has God brought us? It could be a very physical space, but guess what? It could also be a mental space. It could just be a space that's like, mentally, how how am I at this space I never imagined that I'd be in? Well, God's plans happen, and they are good plans when our plans unravel. Second, God's work is so often making us uncomfortable, very, very uncomfortable. And you're going to notice that's what happens in our story as it proceeds. They, first of all, the spies find themselves in a place they never thought they'd be in, at the house of Rahab, the prostitute. But they also find out very quickly that they're going to become uncomfortable because the city, the king, sleuths out very fast that they're in town. And so the, you know, so much for secrecy, that's out the window We thought we could blend in. We can't. And suddenly the king is now looking for us. And what's going to happen with these spies if they get caught? Jailed for sure. Maybe even killed. And so automatically their blood pressure rises. Can you imagine how these men feel? Worried. They have come to this city in order to spy it out. Now the king knows who they are and he's searching for them. And God's work oftentimes makes us very, very uncomfortable. And he's doing something behind the scenes usually that is significant, but we can't see it. And these guys are part of a bigger story, but they can't see it. All they know is our lives are on the line. The king's looking for us. This looks like a very dire moment. And even if God is stitching together that greater plan, I'm obviously not privy to it so many times. And so God is, well... He doesn't let up on the gas. 
And oftentimes he allows us to feel that level of discomfort, even, even if there's something greater that's happening, but we don't know it, God's allowing us to feel that. Tim Keller tells the story in The Prodigal Prophet, and here's the story he tells. He says, years ago, I read an old fairy tale about a wicked witch who lived in a remote village in the deep forest. When travelers came through looking for lodging, she offered them a meal and a bed. And it was the most wonderfully comfortable bed anybody had ever slept in. But it was a bed full of deep magic. And if you went to sleep in it and the sun came up, you turned into stone. And then you became a figure in the witch's statuary, trapped until the end of time. The witch forced a young girl to serve her. And though she had no power to resist the witch, the girl became increasingly filled with more pity for each of the victims that followed. One day, a young man came looking for room and board, and he was taken in. And the servant girl could not bear to see him turned into, st- into stone. And so, all night, she threw sticks and stones and thistles into the bed of the man in order that he might sleep uncomfortably. Every time he turned over, there was a painful object sticking into him. And though he cast each one out, they kept on coming into the bed as fast as he could push them out It was a needle here or a thorn there and it kept him up all night and he did not sleep very well and obviously was well awake before dawn. As he walked out the front door, the servant girl met him and he berated her and cruelly said, how could you give a traveler such a terrible bed full of sticks and stones? He cried and went on his way. Ah, she said to him, the misery you know now is nothing compared to the infinitely greater misery of a comfortable bed that you would have slept upon to your death. Those were my stones and sticks of love. Keller continues on. God put sticks and stones of love in our beds to wake us up and to bring us to rely upon him. Lest the end of history or the end of life overtake us without the Lord in our hearts. And he said, at that point, without him, we would be turned into stone. When plans unravel, you can count on it. You're going to be uncomfortable. And God is stitching together a greater story, and likely you can't see it yet. Sometimes we get to know that. Sometimes we don't. But God is not averse to allowing us to feel uncomfortable when our plans unravel. I've got one more thing I want you to see today. God's work uses people for our benefit that we never expected. He uses people for our benefit that we never expected. To the astonishment of the men, Rahab comes to the rescue. She hides the men upstairs and puts the king's men on this wild goose chase. So she hides the men and then tells all the king's men who are searching for him, oh yeah, I think they went off. They left before we closed the gates and off they went on the goose chase trying to find the men And all the time, the uh, spies were held in her upper uh, area among the flax uh, bundles. And there they were hiding until, well, till the next morning. You know the story is uh, is an amazing one because they never imagined that Rahab would be the one that would save them. Go home to tell mom, oh yeah, the prostitute saved us. I mean, you know, just again, it just doesn't ring like a story you you would make up or you would want to, to have true about yourself. But that's the woman that came to their rescue. And so many times in biblical history, it's the unexpected person that comes to the rescue. It's the unexpected person that's like, whoa, here they are, and they just deliver something amazing, and and they're the little person. Let me give you an example of that. Jethro 
is the uh, father-in-law of Moses. And we're not really told that much about Jethro, but one of the significant things that happens is he shows up around Moses' life one day. Moses is like leading away and doing all of his stuff, and Jethro pulls him off to the side and goes, Mo, hey, hey you, you got a problem here. He's, you're doing too, way too much. You're going to burn yourself out. You have got to delegate and give some authority and give some leadership to some other people. Break groups up into 50s and 100s and see if you can't attach some leaders over that. And Moses does that for the benefit of the nation and for the, really the health and benefit of Moses. He gives this excellent leadership advice. And here he is, just this minor figure in the Bible. Think about uh, the, the girl. She's a servant girl to Naaman. This is, uh, Naaman is a Syrian leader above Israel in Syria. And he's this general. And likely this little girl is taken captive in one of the raids by the Syrians into Israel. So she has a lot of reasons to be very spiteful and vengeful. But the man Naaman gets leprosy. And out of pity for him, she says, guess what? I've got a guy that can heal you. And he says, tell me more. And she says, it's Elijah the prophet. If you go back down into Israel and visit him, I think you can be healed. And he takes her advice and does it. And indeed, Naaman, uh, Naaman finds Elijah. He tells him to do some strange things, at least from uh, Naaman's standpoint. But he is healed. And it's this little girl, we don't even know her name that is the one that is the hero of the story and the one that saves Naaman's life. God often moves in the heart of very unexpected people and he does it for his own glory. They're little people. They're forgotten people. They're not beautiful people. They're not the attractive people. In fact, Yosef Koresh wrote a book or created a book called The Forces of Greatness and in it, he took the photographs of 90 of the famous people of the world. Somebody looked at all of those photographs and noticed something. They were the faces of individuals who were not physically attractive. 35 of them had unsightly moles or warts. 13 of them had freckles or liver spots on their skin. 20 had obvious traces of acne. Two had visible scars. And all of this that they looked at just from the 90 pictures uh, that he took for his book. I want to show you three of those pictures today. Here's the very first one, Winston Churchill. And, you know, not a handsome man. I mean, you know, really. But here he is, and you think about some of the great things that Winston Churchill did. Here's the next one. Jacques Cousteau. You know, I wanted to be an oceanographer when I grew up, and I, I love to watch Jacques Cousteau. I'm not really sure I ever realized that beak was quite that big. I mean, that, that's a big one. And again, not a physically attractive man, but wow, think of all the things that he was accomplishing. The next one is somebody you're going to recognize right away, Albert Einstein. And you think about his life. My, my point in bringing those men up is not to say that they led insignificant lives at all. In fact, they live very significant lives. But if you were to enter a room and you were going to find the successful person, you wouldn't have chosen them. There was nothing that would have drawn you to them from a physical standpoint. They were the little individuals, the forgotten individuals. And oftentimes, it's the least likely people that can make the biggest difference. I want to tell you one more story on this point about the little people or the insignificant people or the people you didn't expect. And I've been following a story and it's the story of a woman named Amy Craven. And about two months ago, it was in June, she was out running in her Seattle neighborhood 
and she was attacked by two pit bulls. I've got a picture here of her being attacked by the pit bulls. And she was just out for a run and she said the dogs just came out of nowhere, started barking at her and then charged her and took her to the ground. I've got some of the things that she said. I I, I love this. She says, "Um, I could just see the dogs tearing my legs apart. My calf was practically gone. She said, one of the dogs had taken me to the ground and she said, said, I said to myself, I've got to live. She said, I have kids. I've got to... I love them so much. I'm only 46 years old and I can't die. And so she has every will to try to live and she just starts crying out and calling out. And the spot where she was was next to a spot called Union Marine. It was a store, uh, a store that sold boating and boating supplies. And she's crying out and the people at Union Marine hear her crying and they go out and several of them start, you know, accosting the dogs to get them on, to get off her. One guy brings hammers out from Union Marine and starts throwing hammers at the dogs to get them to move away from the lady. And Amy says this. She says, those people saved my life. <laughs> I didn't even know those people were even there. But those people came out of their store and saved my life that morning. And she was largely disfigured in her legs, has had to have surgery, skin grafts, all the rest. But guess what happened last Friday? Last Friday... She went back to Union Marine and she brought lunch to all the employees at Union Marine just to say thank you. Thank you for responding to my cry for help when I needed it. You were there when I needed you the most. Sometimes in the midst of our plans gone wrong, it's unexpected people that show up and they are the ones that God uses somehow in our lives for mighty purposes. I wonder what plans have gone awry for you lately. Maybe you've had an illness that's come out of nowhere. Plans unraveled. Maybe you've retired and now you're looking at the financial downturn and you're like, do I have enough? Plans unraveled. Maybe you've had or a loved one has had an accident, perhaps a car accident or maybe a victim of a crime. Plans unraveled. God's greatest work happens when our plans unravel, and that's always where the gospel comes in. Where Christ comes in and he promises you a future. Not necessarily an easy path, that's not what's being promised here, but you are being promised a future. Romans 8.28 puts it this way, I've got it on the screen here, and we know that in all things God works for the good for those who love him and who've been called according to to his purpose. This is not a health and wealth verse. It's not promising that you're going to be healthy and well all the days of your life with plenty in your bank account. That's not the promise here. It's not a promise of things always going your way. It's not a promise of, well, that hard things will not find you. They will. But it is a promise of this. It's a promise, however, that all the time God is somehow conspiring in the midst of all of that wrong things that have happened for a future for you and a hope for you and a promise for you. And perhaps that's especially what happens in our lives when that occurs is, here's what happens. It draws us to God. It does. We come to God and we say, man, I've just got to pour out my heart and I've got to tell you the things that have gone wrong here and I've got to ask you for your help. I've got to ask you to enter into the midst of this difficulty for me. And something is transpiring with God at that very moment that is creating a deeper sense of trust for you 
a greater, greater sense of your reliance upon God than ever would have happened had that not occurred. Perhaps that's something that all of us can do this morning is come to God and pour out our hearts. And I'm going to challenge you to do that in just a moment. Perhaps it's you that you're going to pour out your heart in this morning. You're going to say, Lord, <laughs> plans have not obviously worked out here and I need your help. Or, or maybe you're going to pray that for somebody else that you know. In fact, it might even be somebody in this very room that you're saying, oh Lord, I'm coming to you on behalf of this individual and I'm asking for you to work in ways I can't even imagine or ways I can't see. Would you join me with me in prayer for that, towards that end right now? We're humbled, Lord, because we so recognize that we can make some pretty grand plans and so many times they don't work out. They get dashed. We are grateful, Lord, that you are so at work when our plans are in a shambles. And we're so grateful, Lord, that your plans, they never fail. We come to you with the deepest pains of our lives right now, whether it be for us or whether it be for a loved one that we know, a friend that we know, maybe a brother or sister in Christ in this very room. And Lord, would you hear us this morning? Would you meet us this morning? Would you console us this morning, assure us this morning, love us this morning, correct and direct us this morning? You are this good God that takes us by the hand and leads us heavenward into eternal life. And perhaps there's no greater moment in which we recognize that than when things look dark. Thank you for your goodness to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.